0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The
1: Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 2. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've just introduced the subject of the Trinity, and last time I indicated that although the word Trinity is not found in the Scriptures, that's really incidental. The point is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a systematic summary of the biblical data that indicate two things that there is one God and that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. And if those facts are true, then the doctrine of the Trinity is true. So let's look at the scriptural data today that support these two truths. First, that there is one God. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we find that this doctrine is taught monotheism. There is but one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. This is the fundamental confession of Judaism, uh, the so-called Shema. And the first clause of that confession is the uniqueness of God. There is one Lord. First Kings, chapter eight and verse 60. First Kings, chapter eight. And verse 60. This is Solomon's benediction on the occasion of the dedication of the temple. And he prays in verse 60 of chapter 8 that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. So there is no other God than the Lord, the God of Israel. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5a and 18. Isaiah chapter 45, and verses 5a and 18. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. And then verse 18 for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it a chaos. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So the God of Israel is the only God that there is. There is no other God. And In the 44th chapter of Isaiah you find at length a satirical critique of the pagan deities of Israel's neighbors. In Isaiah 44 you have this biting satire of idolatry uh, of how the idolater carves a piece of wood, uh, paints it, uh, decorates it, uh, clothes it, and then falls down in front of his own creation and says, Thou art my God, and worships the products of his own hands. And Isaiah just laughs at this, makes fun of it, at at its folly. So, Israel did not consider itself to simply have a special God, one of the many gods. This was Israel's God. No, Israel's God was the only God that there is. There is no other God besides the Lord, besides Yahweh. And in the New Testament, the Christian followers of Jesus, taught and believed the same thing that there is only one God. Look for example at Mark chapter 12 and verse 29. Mark chapter 12 and verse 29. Here Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment and in Mark 12:29 Jesus answered the first is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He here quotes the Shema as the fundamental commandment and confession of Israel and affirms Jewish monotheism. Similarly, in the book of Romans chapter 3, verses 29 and 30a, Paul also affirms monotheism. Romans chapter 3 Verses 29 and 30a. Paul says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. So again, Paul did not conceive the Jewish God to be just one of many. He says the God of Israel is in fact also the God of Gentiles because there is only one God, and therefore Jew and Gentile alike can be united in the worship of the one true God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. Addressing the subject again of pagan idolatry, he says, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no god but one. So these idol gods are not real gods. They are figments of the imagination. Uh, In fact, he says, there is no god but one, the God of Israel. First Timothy, chapter two and verse five. First Timothy, chapter two and verse five. "For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus." So again, Paul affirms um, the uniqueness of God. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. And finally James chapter 2 and verse 19. James 2:19 James says, "You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder." So even the demonic forces are monotheists. Even the demons believe that there is one true God and they tremble because they stand under God's wrath and condemnation. So uh, to state the obvious, uh, it's clear that the Bible teaches that there is but one God, and the Old and New Testaments concur that this is the God of Israel. Any discussion or
0: question about that, Cody? So, as I'm sure you know, in Mormonism, you know they believe that there's like an infinite number of gods right. that are created one after another. It just goes back infinity. So, one of my favorite verses when talking to Mormons about this. Is Isaiah forty-three ten, where it explicitly says, "You know, before me no god was formed, nor shall there be any after me." Okay, so that's one. That's a good verse I find that works very well
1: with Mormons. Isaiah forty-three ten. Yep. Okay, excellent. Yeah, that. It's amazing the forms that polytheism can take, mm-hmm. isn't it? And so that would preclude the idea of there being a god before.
0: The God of Israel. In fact, I find a lot of that stuff in those Isaiah's, like chapter forty-three through forty-eight. It's just chock full of all kinds of verses that just, I think, just refute the Mormon conception
1: of God. Yes, yes. Those passages in Isaiah are so powerful in their criticisms of polytheism and idolatry. Yes, especially when God says, "I know no other." Yeah, I I don't know of any other God. There is none but me, He says. Right. Very good. Okay. Yes.
0: There's an important distinction that needs to be made in terms of how the Bible approaches you know, the subject of God compared to how a lot of other people approach it. It's interesting in a way because, as someone pointed out, the Bible considers God's existence to be self-evident. It doesn't really attempt to justify, like, directly justify the existence of God, saying, like, he exists because. I think Mm -hmm. that's interesting, though. Like, a lot of people will say, oh, that's circular reasoning to say that, you know, to believe that the existence of God is self-evident. But I really think considering something as self-evident is not the same as circular reasoning. For example... We have, for example, we consider it self-evident that people need water to survive because people will die if they go more than a few days without it. And I think in maybe a, a, bit, in a bit of a, in a somewhat less obvious way, I would say the existence of God is self-evident like that. So I really like the way that the Bible approaches it. It just assumes that it's the case, okay. you know, based on the available evidence.
1: All right. Now, it's important that we note that the way you illustrated this, that people need water in order to survive, it shows that by self-evident um, you you don't mean that you, – you, what you do mean is something like it's obvious. By self-evident you mean it's obvious. But you don't mean it's evident apart from evidence. Uh, the way we know that people can't survive without water is we have good evidence for that. They we see them die when they don't have fluids. It's not self-evident in the sense that 2 plus 2 equals 4, where once you understand the meaning of the terms alone you don't need any evidence. It's, it's true, as it were, by definition. Once you understand the meaning of 2 plus 2 and the meaning of the term 4 then it's self-evident. So you're not using the word self-evident in that mathematical sense, you're using it more in the colloquial sense that it's obvious. And I think that is what the scripture teaches. As you began your question, I thought about what it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Uh, Paul says, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here, Paul says that. God's existence is made evident or obvious in the created world. When we look at the creation then it is evident that it has been fashioned by a powerful and eternal creator, so much so that people have no excuse for unbelief. So I think you are quite right in saying that God has revealed himself in the world in such a way that It's obvious that he exists. All right, now, in addition to that, the next point is that the scriptures teach that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. So let's look at each of the three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, God the Father. The scriptures teach that God the Father is a distinct person. Let's look at several passages that indicate that. First Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Matthew 11 and verse 27. Here Jesus says, "All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son." And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Clearly, in this passage, Jesus differentiates himself as the Son from the Father. The Father and the Son stand in relationship to each other, they know each other, and the Son reveals the Father. So clearly, the Father is a distinct person here from the Son. Who knows the Son is known by the Son and is revealed by the Son. Also, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. Matthew 26 and verse 39. This is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest and trial. In verse 39 of Matthew 26, it says, And going on a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here Jesus prays to the Father and asks that he might be spared this terrible suffering. But then he submits his will to the will of the Father and says, Not as I will, But as thou wilt, Uh, again showing the distinction of the Father and the Son, uh, and the submission of the Son to the Father's will. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17. We've seen that the Father and the Son are distinct persons. Now, in John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, we see the Father's distinction from the Spirit. Verse 16, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here we have all three persons of the Godhead. The Son is praying to the Father to send another advocate, another counselor, and that will be the Spirit. So we have three distinct persons here. The father is distinct from both the son and from the spirit. The second point is that not only is the father a distinct person, but that the father is God. Again, this is to state the obvious. Look at Psalm 89:26. Psalm 89 and verse 26. He shall cry to me, thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So, one of the metaphors under which Israel conceived of the Lord, uh, Israel's God, is as a heavenly Father. God is the Father of the children of Israel. And one finds this conception of God as Father um, elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 16 Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 16 Isaiah 63:16 For thou art our father though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us thou O Lord art our father our redeemer from of old Is thy name. Here, Isaiah says even if Abraham doesn't acknowledge us, uh, and Abraham was regarded as the father of the Jewish nation, Israel or Jacob doesn't acknowledge us as his progeny. Nevertheless, the Lord is our father. God is the father of Israel. And then in the New Testament, of course, this is the way in which Jesus presents. The God of the Old Testament to his disciples and to the people whom he taught. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. This is the Lord's prayer. He says, Pray then like this Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So Jesus taught his disciples to pray to God as their heavenly Father and to regard God as their Father. So the Scriptures teach that God the Father is distinct from the Son and from the Spirit and that the Father is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. In fact, this word God in the Greek, hapheos, literally meaning the God, the article ha is the masculine definite article, ha theos, usually in the New Testament refers to God the Father. So that when the authors of the New Testament say something about God, ha theos, they're talking about the Father. So, for example, Paul's customary uh, greeting in his letters was to say something like this. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father is identified with God, God the Father. Or compare what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba! Father. Here again all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned. When it says God sent forth his Son, God sent the Spirit, it means God the Father. and This is clear because the Spirit teaches us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. So God in the New Testament typically refers to the person of the Father. But then it says, The Father sends the Son, who is Jesus, and then He also sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So it's very interesting to read the New Testament in this light that when you read something about God, it's typically talking about God the Father. First point. The Father is a distinct person and the Father is God. Then let's go to the second point, and that is the Son or Jesus Christ. And again, the scriptures indicate both that the Son is a distinct person and also that the Son is God. First, let's look at some verses that indicate that the Son is a distinct person from the Father. Mark chapter 1. Verses 9 to 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is the baptism scene of Jesus. And Mark says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. With thee I am well pleased. Here we have all three persons of the Godhead mentioned. The Son undergoes baptism by John the Baptist, the Spirit descends upon him, and then the Father from heaven says, Thou art my beloved son, with thee I am well pleased." So the Son is clearly distinct from both the Spirit and the Father in this passage. John chapter 17, verses one to five. John chapter 17, verses one to five. This is Jesus' great uh, intercessory prayer for the church. John 17:1 to five. When Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee, since thou hast given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me in thy own presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. Clearly here Jesus is praying to another person he is not talking to himself. He's praying to the Father and asking that the Father would glorify himself in the Son and speaking of how the Son has glorified the Father while on this planet. So we have here a clear distinction between the Father and the Son. In the 16th and the 17th chapter of John in general, Clearly, speak of the three persons of the Godhead. If you want to read these passages 16 and 17 um, on your own, you'll find over and over again the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's look at John 7 and verse 39 for the distinction from the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7 and verse 39. And here Jesus quotes the scripture, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And John says, Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the distinction between the Spirit and the Son is clearly drawn here because. The Son was with them, but the Spirit was not. The Spirit was someone they would receive in the future after Jesus had departed from them and been glorified. So, although the Son was present with them, the Spirit was not yet uh, present with them in the way that He would be in His fullness. The Spirit and the Son are distinguished from each other personally. And finally, John chapter 16. And verse 7. John chapter 16 and verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Here Jesus is speaking of that other counselor or advocate that the Father. Would send. And again, he distinguishes this person from himself. So long as I am here with you, the counselor will not come. But when I go, then the counselor, the Spirit of truth, will be sent to be with you and be in you. And so Jesus distinguishes himself from the Spirit of God who would come after him. So in the New Testament, we have the Son as a distinct. Person from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this person is also God. Um, the Son is God. Now, immediately, this raises a problem. If Hopheos refers to the Father, then how can you say that Jesus is God without? saying or implying that he is the Father, which the New Testament writers did not want to do. They did not believe that the Father had become incarnate and died on the cross, um, that somehow the Father was no longer in heaven. So how could the New Testament writers affirm the deity of Christ without saying or implying that he is the Father? Uh, What you find is that the New Testament authors wrangled every way that they could to assert the deity of Christ without saying that he is God the Father. A very good um, popular-level book on this is by Michael Green, uh, The Truth of God Incarnate. Green does an excellent job of showing the uh, extent to which New Testament writers went to affirm in some very creative ways the deity of Christ without saying that Jesus is hathaios, which would be to say he is the Father. and That's precisely why you do not find these sort of um, flat statements in the New Testament, Jesus is God. Because to say Jesus is hathaios would be to say that Jesus is the Father. And this is not what the New Testament writers wanted to say. And so they find every other way conceivable to express the deity of Christ without coming right out and saying flatly that Jesus is Haphaos. So let's look at uh, some of these ways in which the deity of Christ is affirmed by New Testament authors. First, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 19 and then also chapter 2 and verse 9 Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 19 and then chapter 2 and verse 9 Now way of background to the letter of Colossians Paul is faced here with a sort of incipient gnosticism it would appear um, in Colossae, Gnostics held that the realm of the spiritual is good uh, and that the realm of the material is evil. And therefore, God, being fully um, good, cannot have any sort of concourse or relationship with the material world because that would taint him with evil. And so, Gnostics developed this system whereby God in his fullness, um, God in his purity, is utterly diverse and detached from the world. But there emerge from God in sort of descending, stair-step fashion quasi-divine beings that increasingly mediate between God and the material world. So, a kind of increasing materialization as you descend these stairs. And what Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 19, and 2.9 is that this bifurcation between God and the world is utterly misconceived. Paul says that the whole fullness of deity, that pure God substance, Dwells in Christ, in the flesh, in bodily form. So let's read Colossians one15 to nineteen. He says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities So here Paul says this this fullness of God, the fullness of the Godhead, dwells in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter two and verse nine, he says even more um, clearly, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is so agnostic that the fullness of deity dwells bodily um, in Christ. So This is a statement of the deity of Christ, which is, I think, one of the strongest in the New Testament, um, that Jesus Christ is literally God incarnate. He is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in this world, literally God incarnate. Secondly, New Testament authors used the name of God in the Old Testament, in the Greek Kyrios, for Jesus. Uh, In the Old Testament the name of God, Yahweh, um, was translated in the Greek Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament um, as Kyrios which means Lord. So Lord, or Kyrios, translates the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And the New Testament writers call Jesus Lord, Kyrios, and then they apply to him Old Testament passages about Yahweh. So while not referring to Jesus as Haphaos, which would make him the Father, they do refer to Jesus as Kyrios, Lord and apply to him Old Testament passages about Yahweh. Look, for example, at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 13. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 13. In verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, Kyrios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Here's this fundamental confession of the New Testament church. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Kurios. And then in verse 13, the proof text is given from the Old Testament, quoting from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, for, quote, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved." End quote. So they take this Old Testament passage about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and apply it to Jesus. It says, "Everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved." And this was the most important confession in the New Testament church. Look at First Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12:3 I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, kurios, except by the Holy Spirit. Also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22 where Paul says, Our Lord, come. And the Greek term there is mar- Maranatha. Maranatha. Our Lord come. It's a transliteration into Greek of the Aramaic, Marana Fa, which means Our Lord come. This is the language of the New Testament church at prayer. It goes right back to the Aramaic that the fo- early followers of Jesus spoke in Jerusalem. And they prayed to Jesus as Lord, praying, Our Lord come. So, You have here the original language of the Jerusalem Fellowship praying to Jesus as Lord, the name of God in the Old Testament. So I think you can see how naive it is when somebody says, well, the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus is Hathaios, or is God. What it does say is that Jesus is Kurios, which is the Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. One last passage that I want to share with you and then we'll, we'll finish. And This is 1 Corinthians 8.6. This differentiation between hatheos and kurios leads to some really strange circumlocutions in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians 8.6. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here the Lord and God are differentiated. There is one God, namely the Father, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, and then they are both described in virtually identical terms. They are the ones through whom everything exists, the ground of all being. So they are both God but they're different persons, and one is called the Father, the other is kurios. So chew on that during the week until we meet next time and talk about other creative ways in which the New Testament authors affirm Christ's deity. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the way it guides and elucidates our thinking about you. We treasure it. We love it and we learn gladly from it. Guide us throughout this week and help us to live lives pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.